Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And our text for this morning will be one short verse, verse 18. But I want to read this morning verses 18 to 23. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Listen to Paul as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit as he writes Holy Scripture. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I think we'll continue. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we go to the word of God this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that you have given it to us so that we might know who you are, what you expect, and, and that we might again know you. And so this morning I pray that your Holy Spirit would again illuminate the truths of your word, that we might know more of you, about you, and that we might worship you more in spirit and in truth. And so use your word in our lives as you see fit, I pray in your name. Amen. I, I want you to imagine with me this morning. You're going out to share the gospel with one of your friends. And I mean, that's a difficult thing to do, but you have in some ways screwed up your courage you recognize that Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, and so you're going out. And so as you are walking down the street with your friend, and knocking off the mic, as you are walking down the street with your friend, you see a person and, and you approach them. And your friend says, I've got this one. And they walk up to the person and they say, you're under the wrath of God. You're going to hell. You need to repent right now because you're going to burn in hell for eternity for all time. 
God is angry with you. He is angry with sinners and he's angry with sin and you are in trouble. What's your response going to be? Are you going to be like, well, maybe I'm one of those people who might be just slightly ashamed of the gospel, right? That's a little bit harsh. In fact, you're thinking at this point, I think my friend needs some sensitivity training because that's not really going to go well. People don't like to hear that. But that's exactly where Paul starts. That's exactly where Paul starts. He starts the gospel in this treaty on the gospel after giving this introduction and why we should look at the book and introducing the themes of the books. He says, here's the problem. For the wrath of God is revealed. This is where he starts. He starts with the bad news. He doesn't start with good news. Jesus loves you and he's got a plan for your life. Paul starts exactly where you need to start. Guess what? There's a problem. It's called the wrath of God. And when you give a gospel presentation and all you say are the good things and you say God's, God loves you, God's going to forgive your sin, you're forgetting about the wrath of God and you're not presenting the whole gospel. And you are actually removing one of God's designs in order to make people recognize their need for the gospel. Why do I need the gospel? God's going to save you. From what? God's, God's going to make your life better. Well, my life's pretty good already. What do I need to? Well, God doesn't like sin. Well, that's nice. But what makes the gospel the gospel and, and necessary is the fact that what? The wrath of God. And so Paul is going to deal with that, exactly with that in our text this morning. Here's the problem. God is wrathful. It may not be the picture of God that we like. It might not be a popular picture. It might be one that most people try to suppress. But God is actually a wrathful God against sin. Now this morning as we start our text and as we start at verse 18, we're going to recognize we are, Paul is now transitioning in this book. And he's, start, he's starting really a major section of this book. And it runs from verses 18 to the end of chapter 4. And he really is giving us and explaining what the gospel is. And he's giving an explanation of justification by faith. In other words, you, you, in order to get saved, you're going to need to be justified, declared righteous. And the only way to be declared righteous is to receive Christ's righteousness through faith. Now, in this first major section... Paul, in chapters 1 through verses 320, is going to talk to, about, talk to us about the universal need for justification. In verses 1, chapter 1, verses 18 to 320, he's going to talk about the universal need for justification. And then in verses 321 to 331, he's going to give an initial explanation uh, explanation of the gospel of justification by faith alone. And in chapter 4, he will give a biblical defense of justification by faith as he goes through the Old Testament and says, hey, listen, this isn't new. This is something that God has planned from eternity past. So if we were going to sum up this section, if we we're going to sum up the section in verses one. 18 to 320, we would say it's the universal need for justification. In other words, we need to be declared righteous and every human being on the planet needs it. Now, if you remember in verse 17, Paul said, for it, that is the gospel, and in it, that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, Salvation comes from beginning to end by faith. It's not something you can earn. It's not something that you, can, you deserve. It's not something that can be made up in our flesh. But it is something that must be received by faith. And so Paul, in essence, says, here's, here's, I want to introduce you here to the, the fact that salvation is a gift and righteousness is a gift that comes from God. And so he, he begins that in 17, 16 and 17, and, but 
he has this section in between because he takes up that same theme in chapter 3, verse 21. He goes back to that theme, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who what? Believe. And so he goes back to that topic in 321. But between those two verses, Paul presents evidence for the universal need for man for the gospel. Every human being needs the gospel. Every human being is born into a condition of sin that leads them to have a lack of personal righteousness, a righteousness that is not perfect, a righteousness that is not perfect like God's righteousness. Now again, you might say, well, why does he start there? And we've touched on it already. Because you have to let people know that they're in trouble. You have to know, let them know that they're sick spiritually, that they're dead spiritually. We just took my father to the doctor. We didn't say, well, dad, you're looking good. We're going to take you to the doctor. We said, oh, you, you, you don't look well. We'll take you to the doctor. And people don't go to a doctor unless they know they're sick. And people won't come to the gospel and recognize their need for the gospel until what? Until they know that they're in trouble. They need bad news so that the good news is good news. Otherwise, it's just news. And so Paul starts with this bad news. He sets out to prove man's universal need for the righteousness that God can give. Only God can give this righteousness. And so the only way that we ne- you are interested in this righteousness is to recognize the bad news. And so no one can say, oh, I'm all right with God. I'm a good person. I'm better than my neighbor, certainly. I do a lot of good things. Paul says, you need perfect righteousness that is given to you from, by God. You're not okay with God if you do not have his righteousness. Now, it's interesting, and I'm, I'm giving you a lot of information here this morning, but I want to set us up as we, as we move forward. Now, as he proves that this need for God, of the gospel and that everyone needs it, and that everyone actually deserves God's wrath, he begins by starting with the Gentile pagan. He does that, in verses 1, 18 to 32, he go to the end of the chapter, and he begins to deal really with those who are pagans. This is really people who do not claim to worship the God of the Bible. It's any religion outside of that. So if you're a Buddhist, a Hinduist, a Islam, all of those who worship a God outside of the Bible, he says this is them. These are people who don't claim in any way to follow the God of the Bible, whether they're an atheist or follow some other religion. In fact, in verse 23, he really sums these people up. They've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They now worship something else than the living God. They're not even claiming to worship the true God. They are simply worshiping something else. Some idols, some other God, some other ideology and philosophy. And so these are the Gentile pagans. These are anyone, and we could say universally anyone, who claims to worship any kind of God outside of the God of the Bible. Well, there's a second group that he indicts, and that's beginning in verse chapter 2, verse 1, and he is indicting the Jews here. He's having a confrontation with them, and, and in this confrontation, really, the, and, and in this indictment, is of every moral religious person who claims to worship the God of the Bible. And there are many people who claim to be worshiping the God of the Bible. They use his name. They use the word of God. At least they use part of the word of God. 
those who would be in the Mormon church, the Catholic church, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of those who would in some way start with some of the Bible, claim to be worshiping Jehovah or the true God. And he says, he indicts them. They're moral and religious, but they don't worship the true God. They're not connected to him through his righteousness. In fact, he says in chapter 2, verse 17, but if you bear the name of Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, the true God, and you know his will and scripture, and you approve the things that are essential to being instructed, you are confident that you, that is your guide. He's speaking there to Jews. And he says, you are the ones who, who are confident. You think because you have the law, because you, are obeyed, you obey it, that you are right with God. And he says, actually, you are what are a guide to the blind. He says, you're not connected to God at all because you think you can get there through your works. He thinks because you, you're, you're religious and moral that somehow you'll be good with God. And he says, that's not true. And then there's a third group he indicts. And it's really, and this is just in case you don't think you fall into any of those categories. He says, all humanity, all humanity. And this begins in verse 3-9 and runs down through the end of this section, verse 20. Here Paul's comprehensive indictment of all humanity. And now these verses are key to understanding this section. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. When they when we are when they are verse 9. I'm going to read. What then? Are we better than they? Speaking of the Jews, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under Sin. That's what he's done for the first couple of chapters as it is written. And now he's going to get completely comprehensive. He says in verse 10, there is what? None righteous, not one. The whole passage flows down this way to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Here's the key. So that what? Every mouth may be closed. What Paul is dealing with in in this section is to bring every single human being to the point that when he stands before God and the judgment, he has nothing to say. All he can do is what? Cup his hand over his mouth and shut up. But he has no excuse. He goes all the way. He goes on to say, and all the world may become accountable to God. The focus of this section is in 3, 9 to 20, it's compre- a co- comprehensive indictment of all humanity. So there's kind of an overview of what Paul is doing in this section. And I just want us to paint this picture as Paul gives this universal indictment of all humanity and the need for righteousness. This is why we need the gospel. Now today we're beginning <laughs> in verses this section between verses 18 to 32. This indictment of the Gentile pagans. And again, we said this goes for everyone who does not try to follow Scripture or the God of the Bible, every person who's disconnected from the true God. And so he says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, the first thing we note is that this sentence flows in context Notice it begins with that important word for. It's the little words that we need to follow, those conjunctions. But because what's the connection? Paul links the wrath of God to the gospel, what he mentioned in verses 16 and 17. There's a connection here. The righteousness from God, what's the connection? Listen carefully. God's gift of righteousness is revealed in the gospel is necessary because of verse 18. In other words, you need the gospel, you need the righteousness that's revealed there. You need that given to you because God's wrath is revealed against man's sin. Here's the problem. God is wrathful. God despises sin. And this is why you need the gospel. 
You need to recognize that you are destitute of any righteousness that can save you. Nothing that can satisfy God's demands. And therefore, we are all worthy to be exposed to the wrath of God without his righteousness. The only hope is righteousness promised in verse 17. And that comes not by works, not by trying to be good enough for God, but through faith in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could say this, the theme of this paragraph is the Gentile pagan has rebelled against God's general revelation and creation and therefore he is without excuse and deserves God's wrath. Now we don't like to talk about God's wrath because it's not popular. We don't like to talk about God's wrath and often we, it's because it's offensive. We don't like to talk about God's wrath because it makes people uncomfortable. It's offensive. And for much of church history, many have tried to downplay God's wrath. They have tried to make God's wrath out to be not something personal, but rather something that is that God put the universe into, into order and, and now the order of the universe is a moral universe and therefore there are consequences to behavior. But the Bible makes it very, very clear that actually God is personally wrathful. He pours out his wrath. In fact, it says in Revelation that when, we get, when people get to hell, God will pour out his wrath continually in hell. This is sin is against a personal God and he takes it personally. Now, sometimes we get confused because we think that God's wrath is like our wrath. It's like our anger. We get angry, we stomp our foot, we get angry, we, we blow up, we go off a handle, we are upset because someone has done something to us, trampled one of our rights, it's about us, it's an unrighteous anger, and we get upset. And so we often put that over God and say, well, God's wrath is similar to human wrath, so, you know, it, it's kind of ugly. But that's not what God's wrath is. In fact, he describes what God's wrath is. He says, it's the wrath of God. Simply put, because it's the wrath of God, it means that it is, the, it is wrath or the, uh, of God. It's divine wrath. In other words, it's nothing like human wrath. It's nothing that is, ever comes into the world through humanity. It's not like yours and my wrath. In fact, it's an attribute of God, the holy person of God. And so it is, it is a wrath that comes from God that is divine. It is not like human wrath. It's not a, a, a wrath that comes from getting, losing one's temper, but rather it is a product of God's character as he responds to evil. How a holy God responds to evil in fact, he goes on to say that this wrath is from heaven. In other words, it sources heaven. The wrath of God comes from heaven. Earth is, dom Earth is actually dominated by heaven. We know that Satan is a prince of the power of the air, but ultimately he, it is God who is in control. And so this wrath comes from the very throne of God. Now, I just want us, I want to define very clearly what the wrath of God is. Because we must understand. One dictionary defines God's wrath as this. It is the settled opposition of God's nature against evil. His holy displeasure against sinners and sin. And the punishment he justly meets out on them on account of their sins. Now notice this, it is based what? In the character and the nature of God. This is not something that is foreign to God. This comes out of his perfect character. It is an attribute of God that is imperfectly aligned with his love, his justice, his peace, all of his, his knowledge, all of it. 
And this is what makes God, the proper understanding of God's wrath, this what makes it necessary to get God's righteousness. As I said earlier, what difference does it make if God just didn't like sin? If he just found it less than nice? If he just turned his nose up at it and said, I don't really like that? that would, there would be no impetus to change. But understand that God's wrath includes not only his displeasure with sin, not only his hatred of sin, his displeasure, but also the punishment of of that sin. God punishes it. It's his resolute action in punishing sin, God's determination to punish it. And he doesn't throw sin into hell. He sends, he throws sinners into hell. Now we have examples of God's wrath all through Scripture. We see them all through Scripture. In fact, if we start, we read this morning in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, don't eat of the tree of the fruit of good and evil. Right? And they did. And what did God do? Well, that's okay. I didn't really like it, but that's okay. Did he? No, he didn't. He cursed them. He cursed the woman in her role. He cursed the man in his role. And then he said, get out of the garden. Get out. He kicked them out. They died Spiritually, immediately, they began to die physically. God didn't just say it's okay. There was a punishment. And in fact, God killed the first animal and covered them, a sacrifice for their sin, because it was necessary in order for them to be in relationship with God. Didn't take long. Genesis chapter 6, right? Every thought and intent of man's heart was evil. What did God do? Oh, that's all right. Did he? No, he called a little guy called Noah. The guy who started building in a boat in a world where they had never had any rain. And God poured out his judgment on all the world except for eight people. And he wiped them out. Why? Because of their sin. Sodom and Gomorrah. God stepped in with his wrath. He wiped them out with fire. He sent Syria to judge Israel. He sent Babylon to judge Judah. He poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. But that's really just an Old Testament God, right? He was a little angry. God in the New Testament, he's not like that, right? He's not angry. He, he, he's a loving God. He That was just kind of just a scary in the Old Testament, but not anymore, right? And he says in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, we read that this morning. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. In other words, God's wrath is still coming. There's a time where God will pour out his wrath on his return on those who are disobedient to him. God is still a God of wrath. Revelation demonstrates God's judgment. God is coming back with judgment. But you'll notice here in Romans, Paul says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now notice this, he doesn't say that the wrath of God will be revealed in the future, but present tense that it is being revealed. It could be, we could translate this even, for the wrath of God is constantly being revealed from heaven. If we said it's going to be revealed in the future, that would mean we could say what? 
Well, I've got some time. I'll procrastinate. Things are all good. Right? I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'll wait till I'm older. I'll, I'll wait just another bit longer so that I can stay in my sin. But he says, the wrath of God is revealed now. It's a present revelation of that wrath, which makes the gospel message so urgent. That's why every single person needs to hear the gospel and they need to respond now because God's wrath isn't just waiting for the future. It's being revealed now. Now, what do we mean by God's wrath is revealed? How is it being revealed now? Well, we have to stay within the context of Romans. And in the context of Romans, this wrath is a wrath of God's abandonment. It's when men repeatedly reject God, he will come to the place known only to him when he will abandon them and turn them over to their own ways. God will simply stop fighting with men. He will stop trying to save them. He will stop going after them. And at that point in time, God will turn that person over to their own devices. He will turn them over to their sin. He will no longer have their conscience coming after them. He will no longer call them to himself. He will abandon them to their sin. In other words, there comes a point where God will no longer strive with men and he will give you exactly what you want. He will give you your sin and the punishment that it goes with it. This is again found in Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28. Paul states, Therefore, what? God gave them over to the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 24. Again in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for the unnatural. This is the gross sin of sexual, a lesbian then in verse 27, in the same way also men, ab- the men abandon natural function and burn in desire to one another. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, the wrath is their present rejection of God. They have rejected God and now God has given them the sin that they desire. It says they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over. This is the third time Paul says that. God gave them over. It is a slippery slope that leads further away from God. But the repeated rejection of God, they're, they're sending deeper and deeper into sin. It's like a spiral and it just goes down and down. And the more we sin, the more we, the further we get captured by it. It starts with immorality, turns to the grossest of immorality. But the depravity doesn't end there. There's a basement that's even lower. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things that are not proper. And then in verses 29 to 31, he spells out that final stage of the present abandonment of wrath. Results in the reprobate mind that can no longer rationally think Tragically, they no longer differentiate between right and wrong. Their conscience is neutered. It says they ultimately what? Give hearty approval to those who practice the things that are against God. The depraved mind. The scariest place to be. And this can happen to a person, to a culture, society, denomination, a seminary, a church, anywhere. God can simply abandon them to their sin. In this present hour, it's a problem in North America. Our nation has abandoned God's morals. They have abandoned God's ways. And we have seen the spiral of that in our society, have we not?
Paul says, here's the problem. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And so Paul says, here's the problem. The wrath of God is revealed. It is being continually revealed. People are being, as they reject God's ways, are being turned over. And they're in the scariest position where God no longer strives for them. They're cascading towards judgment because God has given them over to the desires of their heart and to their sin and a depraved mind. Now that introduces this section and we, we need to begin to walk through this text. And so in verses 18 to 23, We'll see why God revealed his wrath in verses 24 to 32. We will see how God's wrath is revealed. So he begins this section, first of all, as why is God's wrath revealed against immorality? What, what makes God angry? What, what brings him against them? And in this paragraph or in this, in this section, Paul gives two reasons why God is angry with the immoral pagan gives us two more. First of all, the willful rebellion against God's law. And secondly, the willful ignorance of God's person. Now, first of all, Paul's indictment of the moral pagan begins with rebellion against God's law. Now, you might say, well, first of all, you might be thinking, well, what about those people who don't know about God's law? What about those people who have never heard the gospel? That's not fair. Well, actually, Paul addresses that pretty clearly. And he says in verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are, are just before God, but the doers of the law. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do the things of the law, these are not the law having the law, are the law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. He's saying this, God has written his law in their hearts. He's written his law in every single person's heart. In fact, he's even demonstrated, he's even shown that he is, exists to them. He's put it in their hearts. They're without excuse because every single time someone sins and they have a twinge of their conscience, guess what? That's God's law written in their heart and they know that they're sinning and they are culpable for that. So there's no one who's not responsible to God's law. No one is no one who's not responsible before God. Every human being knows God's law because God has written the essence of it into the DNA of their heart. There's no one without excuse. And everyone has rejected that truth and everyone has crossed that truth. Now Paul gets very specific about the rebellion in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, the indictment of this section, I already told you that Paul was addressing the guilt of immoral pagans. But in reality, this indictment is for all men and women. All those who are religious, those who are pagan, those who are moral in their lives, who are immoral, those who are Jews, who are Gentiles. This verse describes all mankind rebellion against their creator. Now notice, Paul says our rebellion against God's law falls into two basic categories. First of all, there is ungodliness. First of all, there is ungodliness and then unrighteousness. And he says, first of all, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Literally, it means upon. It, it has the idea of God's wrath coming and descending upon those who are ungodly. 
This word is a vertical word, this, this, this idea of ungodliness. It describes man's relationship specifically to God. And it describes a sinful, flawed response to God, to, to the true God. And it states a settled opposition to God, a refusal to recognize his rightful claim. Now, that doesn't mean that they're irreligious. It doesn't mean they don't have a religious. It doesn't mean that they don't, they're not pious. These people worship, and we know from Romans that all people are created as worshipers. They were created to worship the true God, but these ones have decided to worship anything but the true God. Now, as we look at ungodliness, it consists in parts of several things. Ungodliness, first of all, is a lack of fear of God. It's a lack of fear of God. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not, what, honor him. And we'll talk about this next week. Now, the word honor, if you look at the New American Standard in the marginal reference, literally says glorify. They did not glorify God. They did not put him in his right place. They did not respond to him with the respect and the honor and fear that he deserves. They did not glorify him. If you turn over to chapter 3, verse 11, he says this. When it comes to the the, the indictment of humanity, 3.11, there's none who understands. There is none, none, no one who seeks God. They didn't put him in his rightful place because no men naturally seek God. We say, but there's a lot of people in false religions. Aren't Aren't they looking for God? Aren't they seeking God? No, they're not. They're actually running from God. They are replacing the true God and the knowledge that God has given them and they, have, they are running away from him and worshiping a God of their own making. So there are those who have no fear of God before their eyes. This is the heart of ungodliness. A second part of ungodliness is not only a lack of fear of God, but a lack of love for God. This is the most basic command that God has given to humanity. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5 with the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is what God expects. This is what God demands of you. Remember Jesus when he, in Matthew 22, the scribes come and try to trip him up. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus simply says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And yet, ungodliness does not love God. The person who's ungodly does not respond to God in love. In fact, in the es- in fact it is the essence of being a Christian to respond to God in love. For we know that all things work, causes all things to work together for Good for those who love God, for those who are called what? According to his purpose. Why? To those that what? Love God. That's who God is in right standing with. The true follower of Christ is the one who loves God. But those who do not follow Christ, those are not true believers and do not love God. They are ungodly. Right? And Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. The essence of love is obedience. The ungodly do not obey. Third part of being ungodly, is not only the lack of fear of God or lack of honor of God, a lack of love for God, but thirdly, a lack of worship of God. This is foundational to what God requires of us. When God lays out the sort of basic overview of his law in the Ten Commandments, how does he start? Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods, what? Before me. Now we want to clarify that. 
when he says before me, he's not talking about, pri- he's not talking about priority here. He doesn't say, you can worship other gods, but just make me first. All right? When he says before, he means in my presence. You shall have no other gods, what? In my presence. Well, where, where is God present? Everywhere. Everywhere present. He's saying, I'm the only one and true God, and I, will, I sh- should be the only one that is worshipped. You worship me alone. And the second commandment, if you look at it, really says you need to worship God what? In the way that he demands to be worshipped. You don't get to worship God your way. God's not interested in you worshiping him the way you feel like. I want to worship God this way. God has a prescribed way to be worshiped and you must worship him that way. But instead what happens in Romans chapter 123, men and women exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for images. Right? They get into idolatry. Verse 25, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So understand that every person on the planet knows he should fear the one true God, should love the one true God and should worship the one true God, but rebels against that knowledge. He is ungodly. For sinful, selfish reason, he does not fear God, but fears men and other things. He does not love God, but he loves himself. And he does not worship God, but he worships idols of his own making. There's a second category of sinfulness in Romans 1.18. Not only ungodliness, but unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now let me distinguish between those two words. Ungodliness has to do with our sin directed against God's person. Unrighteousness has our, to do with our sin directed against God's law. Unrighteousness is a lack of a conformity in our thoughts, our words, and our actions to God's law. And that is ultimately then to his character because his character is what shapes his law. That's why when we talk about being obedient, we, we then glorify God by what? Demonstrating his character to the world. And so Paul goes on to identify a number of sins that pagans engage in that violate God's law. In verse 24, it's Im- Moral impurity, sexual impurity. In verse 26, is homosexuality. But then in verse 29 to 31, he gives a list of sins. One of, the, one of the many lists of vices in the New Testament. A whole group of sin that characterize the violations of God's law or, or unrighteousness. Now notice, as we look back at verse 16, the word all. The word all. Right? He says, against all unrighteousness. Not some, not most, but all. In other words, God does not look over any unrighteousness. He does not look over any sin. There's no expressions of ungodliness, unrighteousness against God that, which do not bring his wrath. God's wrath is universal, being discharged against all who deserve it, without exception. No matter how much goodwill you try to get, no matter how you give to the poor, no matter how helpful you are to others, all that falls short of the perfect righteousness of God. No one escapes. You can't look at others and say, well, I'm better than them. 
God's standard is perfection. There's no sin that you will ever commit it against God, which God's wrath is not revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. It is universal. It is for all apart from the grace of God. Well, there's one, there's a second reason that God is angry with men, and that is the willful ignorance of God's person. Willful ignorance of God's person. The pagan is willfully ignorant of God's person. And there's just part of this indictment here at the end of verse 18. Notice, men who what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now he explains that in in verses 19 to 23, and we'll go through that next week. But he says, we'll take a brief look at this. For the wrath of God is revealed against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now what truth is to which Paul is referring? Well, the context context makes it very clear he means the truth about God that is revealed in creation look at verse 19 because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes specifically his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and they are understood by looking at what he has made so that all human beings are what without excuse there's no excuse. So understand what Paul is saying. God has made certain things about himself known in creation. His existence, his eternal power, his divine nature, are all his glory, his existence. All of these things are manifested through what has been made. But look at verse 18. He suppresses it. He holds it down. He stifles it. He does everything to to silence its voice in his life. One person said that the, the truth of God is written in our hearts and men try to stifle it. It's like taking a beach ball to the beach and you jump in the water, right? You can hold that, that beach ball under the water. If you get on top of it, if you're careful, you can keep it down, right? But it's a willful, deliberate try on your part to keep that ball under the water. But the moment you let go, what happens to that ball? Pops up to the surface, right? And stays on the top. And so it is with God's truth. Men try to stifle it. Men try to keep it down. And they willfully try to stay away from it. But that truth just keeps coming back, right? And we know that those who claim that there is no God and that they don't, aren't responsible to God, there are those moments where their guard's down, where they're tired and they're weak and they slay on their beds and they know. They know. And how do we know that they know? Because God says they know. And there are those who are in varying degrees of suppressing the truth, of trying to hold that truth back. But God says that truth is still there. And that's what every sinner chooses to do. He intentionally ignores or denies what God has made evident to him about his person. Don't want to see it. Willfully ignorant. But God says they know the truth of his existence. They see his divine nature and they intentionally keep it away. John Stott writes, it's not just that they do wrong, though they know better. Is that they have made a decision to live for themselves rather than for God and others and therefore deliberately stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness. Well, why do they do that? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness? Paul means we suppress the truth. He could mean... We suppress the truth by our unrighteousness, by the things we do. But I think it's best to understand we suppress the truth we know about God and his law because of our unrighteousness, because we love sin. We want to do what we want to do, so we suppress the truth. 
every person is naturally inclined to follow sin and resist God. We could say, who are consistently attempting to suppress the truth by steadfastly holding to their sin. And so the unrighteous man, it's part of his nature that every person has a built-in, natural, compelling desire to suppress and oppose God's truth. No wonder God is angry with men for their ungodliness that leads to unrighteousness. God is angry with our ungodliness and our unrighteousness and with our suppression of his truth that he has revealed. So God God is wrathful, God is angry. But here's the good news. God is also a God of grace. He's a God of grace. Grace is a quality of God's character that causes him to delight, delight not just to do, but delight in doing good to those who deserve exactly the opposite. That's grace. And moved solely by his grace, God made his way to satisfy and to justify the ungodly and the righteous. Remember, it says, for God so loved the world that he sent. It did not say, for God felt obligated. He was not obligated. He says, for God so loved that he sent. It was solely by grace, solely by his choice. That's why Romans 6, 5, 6 says, for while we were helpless, there was nothing that we could do to get righteous with God, nothing that could save us, nothing that spiritually that would make us capable of it at the right time Christ what died for the ungodly those who didn't fear God those who didn't love God those who didn't worship God he died what on their behalf and because he did that look back at verse chapter 4 verse 5 because of the work of Christ in his life and death, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as what? Righteousness. There's good news. There's a righteousness that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he, when he saves, gives you a righteousness that saves you from the wrath of God. And so today, we're called to respond to God's wrath, recognizing that if you are not his, that you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you must trust in his finished work in faith. And if you believe, if you have faith, put your trust for your eternity, for your salvation, and to make him Lord and savior of your life, then you can have his righteousness credited to you and you will never face the wrath of God. My friends, his wrath is being revealed every day. You do not know when his wrath of abandonment will come to you because as you have heard the gospel, as you have heard the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, as you have the witness of creation to demonstrate his glory and his power and his existence. As you have heard the full gospel, you are responsible for it. And you never know when your rejection will be that time where God will take his hands off you and he will give you exactly what you want and he will allow you to sin to your pleasure with your depraved mind until he punishes you in eternity for all of those sins and he gives you exactly what you wanted and you will face his wrath as you pile up his wrath as you sin against him his person and against his law and so today I call you as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ believe on the Lord Jesus Christ come before him as one preacher said Right now you are what? 
like a spider hanging by a thin thread over a pit of fire. Flee, flee to him because his wrath is now being held back and one day he will lift that dam and it will come down on you. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and then you will never have to face his wrath but rather you will get to enjoy him for all eternity in heaven. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we are reminded again this morning of your grace. And we praise and thank you that we have been, for those of us who know you, we have been saved from your wrath. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone under the hearing of my voice, that you would work in their heart to open their eyes, to regenerate them, that they might see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. That they might recognize this morning that they are under the wrath of God and they are not promised that you will not take away your presence from them and you will not pursue them any longer. In fact, they're not even promised their next heartbeat. And so I pray that they would recognize that they are under the wrath of a mighty, infinite God and that they need you. And so please open their eyes that they may see Jesus. We praise and thank you that we will never face that wrath because we are standing in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for that in your name. Amen.